ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Voice became a proxy for the broader political battle and it's no secret around this building that there will be consequences for for, for the leader that doesn't prevail on referendum day. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellas from RN Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, after all the talk about, you know, getting the voice to Parliament finally out of the hands of politicians and into the community because, you know, it's our decision to decide at a referendum, I don't think The Voice has ever been more politicised than it has in the past two weeks in Canberra. So many opposition questions on The Voice, suspension of standing orders, allegations of secret plans. It's been really unrelenting. What's it all about? One theory is the Prime Minister knows The Voice is in trouble, so he stepped up his leadership of the debate. And the other theory is that this is now part of the coalition's re-election strategy. Phil Curry, political editor for the Australian Financial Review, wrote about that this weekend, and he's our guest shortly. But PK, in the middle of this pretty rabid debate around The Voice was the Gama Festival in Arnhem Land, on the lands of the Yalngu people. You were there with many, many others. Given the divisiveness of this issue right now, what was the mood there at Gama? Gama, where uh, disproportionately, yes, voters and supporters were at this uh, festival, to be clear, disproportionately. So this is a place where most people think this is a good idea. So that's so it was a yes fest. Absolutely. Um, But here, there was actually quite a lot of optimism, despite the negative polling and the negative uh, or fractious debate. And that was surprising to me, because you'd think there would be a lot of doom and gloom, right? Um, Given what you keep reading in the newspapers, you know, this is all going on a trajectory of, of sinking. Yet, the many Indigenous Australians I spoke to from across the country, but also Yolnu locals who, can I say, and I've been trying to make this point, I think it's a very important historical point, this idea originates from the Yolnu people. This is not an idea that came from Canberra. It's an idea of a voice that actually uh, the, the late Unipingu did call for this kind of concept. Noel Pearson then developed it. It then turned into these, you know, it was really traversed at these dialogues and then eventually manifested into the Uluru Stamp from the Heart. So the actual genesis and history of this is not a top-down thing, but actually from traditional owners living on the land themselves. So back on the land where this idea was first developed, there is strong support and there is a view that, you know, you've got to go for gold and try and get this up regardless of the negative polling. The Prime Minister delivered a very significant speech where he said he would not delay, he would do this regardless of anything. And that was actually really welcomed by the people there because they they think it's their one shot in the locker. That's the language that um, Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, used with me in an interview. That's it. If you delay, you, you know, it doesn't make it more popular. You do it and you do it once and for all. And so 
it's a high-risk strategy, Fran. Let's see how this goes mm. because the next couple of months is a huge campaign. Yeah, it's a high-risk strategy. The polls show the yes vote tanking and the no vote on an upward trajectory, but that's not the end of the story. As you say, there are still many, many undecided. But we're going to talk more about all of this and particularly the politics around this with Phil a little later. PK, another issue that Albanese is right in the middle of right now, Anthony Albanese, um, while he's so enmeshed in the voice campaign, but the cost of living pressures that preoccupy most Australians, none more so than housing and the cost of it. The stats say that all 12 mortgage rate rises, rents up by an average of 11%, around 175,000 households on the social housing waiting list around the country and only around 105,000 new homes get built every year. It just all doesn't add up. But meanwhile, the government's centrepiece to deal with this, the $10 billion housing affordability finance fund, which we talked about last week here in the party room, is stalled in the Senate really at the mercy of the Greens who are demanding billions of dollars more for houses to be built and to compel the states to freeze rents. Now, this will be on the agenda. In fact, this will be the focus, I think, of National Cabinet when the Prime Minister sits down with the state and territory leaders next week. Um, but I do note, PK, that Anthony Albanese isn't really over-promising here. He's certainly not agreeing to anything like a rent freeze. He said that's not on the table because despite the fact that almost, I think, all bar one state and territory government are Labor governments, you know, they're really in control of the central issues here of supply of housing and rent controls. Anthony Albanese is mindful of saying he can't deliver what the Greens are asking for. No, he can't. The Greens say that he should compel the states. Clearly, though, what is very evident is that the Prime Minister is very aware of what a red-hot issue this is in the community. This hasn't passed him by, and so that's why it's at the top of the agenda for the national cabinet meeting, right, all of the states, they're going to walk out with something, let me tell you, next week. They know they have to, and the Prime Minister knows he has to be looking very much like he's working on this and really pushing back on the Greens' pressure as well. You've got to be careful, of course. I mean, sure, renters are facing skyrocketing rental prices, but some of these measures you can have consequences that you don't anticipate in terms of people pulling out of investing in housing. And right now we do have a supply problem. So, you know, anything that creates disincentives for investing in housing is also problematic. So, I mean, they might pull out because if they can't put the rents up as much as they would plan to, then it's not going to be worth it to some of the You don't have to believe me that the the experts themselves, even people who do think we need a really much more ambitious housing plan, say these are the consequences that you sometimes get from measures like that. And that's why you've got to be really careful about the consequence whenever you make a policy. Sometimes there are unintended consequences and that's one of them. So the National Cabinet needs to provide some alternative proposals, not only to appease the Greens, but actually to deal with community concern. Yes, there's politics, but there's also a real issue going on, as we know. Uh, Just yesterday, we saw the New South Wales Premier announce that his government would be ending no grounds evictions. And the Prime Minister has said it's critical that a national housing accord is fleshed out at the meeting so, Fran, watch so your space, right? There will yeah, be. I mean, there they're will talking be more. more. They're talking better conditions for renters, which is certainly something that tenancy groups have been calling for. But that's not going to address the issue of rents. I, I noticed that in the ACT, they do have a rental cap in place. I think it's CPI plus ten percent. So they've chosen to do it. I wonder why. 
the other states are such a firm no in this. And in Victoria, there was a hint, I think, from the Premier that they would consider it. Are they looking at it really? I think all governments are actually looking at all measures at the moment because the political problem is for all of them, not just the federal government. So any government that isn't looking very seriously at changes to the rental market will actually be facing significant political pressure. So that's what we're seeing here. Look, Fran, let's get to another story which has been huge this week, another messy twist in the Bruce Lehrman trial over the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins that he denies. The Sofronoff inquiry that followed that mistrial became available to the media before it was meant to be officially released. It was, we, we learned about it in, in pa- the paper, for instance, before the ACT chief minister got it. What's going on? Well, let's step back a bit before we try and work out what's going on. Just to remind everyone, the inquiry was led by former Queensland judge Walter Sofronoff. He examined the conduct of criminal justice agencies in the trial of Bruce Lehrman, of, as you say, an allegation which Bruce Lehrman denies and remains unproven in a court still because the first trial was abandoned due to juror misconduct. See, ACT top prosecutor Shane Drumgold called for this inquiry into the police, claiming political interference. But when this report was handed down, and as you say, findings were handed first to a couple of journalists, um, it was critical of both sides, but it was scathing of Shane Drumgold. Walter Sofranot accused the DPP of breaching his duty of conduct, losing objectivity, misleading the court. Shane Drumgold then rejected those findings, but he has resigned, acknowledging his position was now untenable. So... PK, what's going on after all this time, all these missteps, all this poor procedure? We're left with the resignation of the DPP, the published failures of some of ACT's most senior police and their initial handling of the case, one mistrial, and now the early release of this significant report before the ACT government even saw it. Meanwhile, the two people at the centre of all this, at the centre of this serious allegation, Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lehman, are no closer to a resolution which, you know, really amounts to justice denied on both sides. It's just, it's just shocking. It is shocking. That's right. There have been, no doubt, a litany of mistakes in this case. And that confluence of events and misjudgments has completely overwhelmed any justice for anyone involved, right? And the ACT Chief Minister, Andrew Barr, has also made his disappointment at that, you know, information being given to the media first um, known. Here he is. This should have drawn a line uh, under this banner. Unfortunately, whilst the recommendations, I believe, are sound and we have accepted them, the whole process, the leaking, the engagement with journalists on the way through, leaves in the minds of many people questions, significant questions, and it is just so disappointing. And that was Andrew Barr. He's the Chief Minister of the ACT. Now, the ACT government has agreed to most of the recommendations, which include better training for police to improve their understanding of the threshold of sexual assault uh, charges and the rules around evidence in a sexual assault case. I think that's fairly important, given now Brittany Higgins has also made a statement um, concerned about the way that the police handled her. And meanwhile, the Chief Minister's anger at the leaks and the whole thing was pretty palpable. Uh, And at the end of the inquiry, his government is considering whether more criminal charges are ahead for both the former DPP and the former judge who conducted the inquiry. So, you know, fair to call it sort of a, a farce? Is that a fair way to describe it? I think it's fair to call it a farce. I think it's also fair to say that how could this not have a chilling effect on 
you know, other people, primarily women, who are looking at this and are considering whether to try and move, you know, bring sexual assault charges to go to the police to make those sexual assault charges. Now, the ACT chief minister is, you know, messaging as hard as he can to say to people, you can trust the the legal system in this state, but really... It has to have had a chilling effect, I think. And PK, just almost as a footnote to all of this, the the allegations from Brittany Higgins at the centre of this also shone a spotlight on the culture of Parliament House, forced a bit of a a cultural reckoning there in terms of standards of behaviour. And we're recording this on a Thursday. Today, the Minister for Women and Finance, Katie Gallagher, announced the government will move to legislate the Parliamentary Workplace Support Service, which is a new service to deal with complaints of sexual and workplace misconduct in Parliament House. So, you know, that's one of the recommendations of the Set the Standard report done by Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins. I think it's um, probably important that it came out in this week, <laughs> yeah. given what else came out this week. Just just the first tranche and there has to be more legislation too, um, that enforceable commission to try and um, enforce standards as well. So uh, all of that to come. All right, Fran, I think it's the perfect time to bring in our guest. Let's do it. <laughs> Phil Curry, political editor at the Australian Financial Review. Welcome back to the party room. No, nice to be back. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you back, Phil. Phil, this week, like last week, Mm. question time almost completely dominated by coalition questions on the voice to parliament and treaty and makarata, really turning up the heat, uh, alleging now, I think, almost a secret agenda, basically, of what comes after the voice, you know, and what that will mean. It's been pretty full on. You you wrote this week that this is now a key part of the Liberals' re-election strategy. What are you hearing? Look, I think it's fairly self-evident, Fran, um... I think the day that um, Peter Dutton announced, whenever it was a few months ago, the official position of the Liberal Party would be not just to oppose the voice but to actively campaign against it. I think there and then it became um, a proxy. The voice became a proxy for the broader political battle and it's no secret around this building that there will be consequences for for, for the leader that doesn't prevail uh, on referendum day. I I don't think they'll be in terms of you know, losing their leadership, but certainly Anthony Albanese will lose will lose a fair bit of paint um, because you know, he's been so passionate in, in driving this right from election night onwards, and it's indelibly associated with him, regardless of what he says. And you know, if Dutton's back the wrong horse, then he, you know the consequences for him may be a little bit more severe. So there's a, there's a, there's big stakes here, and um, you know, we've seen in the, this week and last week in Parliament. Like you said, we know, you know, the pollsters tells, tell us this, you know, the focus groups are telling both parties that, you know, people sort of, you know, struggling with cost of living and stuff don't really want to hear about the voice every day. They're quite angry about it when they do hear the Prime Minister talking about it so that the libs come into, <laughs> into question time every day and ask mm. about nothing else and then, then complain that the um, that's all the government's talking about because all the grabs are on the news are, are Anthony Albanese and Linda Burney and... And I was speaking just backbenchers last week, and one of them basically said, "You know, that our our goal here is to defeat the voice, to, to to inflict pain on Albanese, and that's the sort of first step towards becoming competitive again at the next election." So, Phil, you know, you mm. say none of this is new; they don't support the voice, but at the mm. same time, there is some confusion. Well, I'm still confused. Mm. Is it the opposition's policy that if this goes down, that a voice should be legislated, yes. or indeed that you know Anthony Albanese should not take it to a referendum? 
referendum, just simply take constitutional recognition, but then should just legislate a yeah. voice. Well, that's right. I mean, well, that do they Peter. support a voice or not? Well, that's that, that's, then this is the point Albanese made in his um, his speech up at Gama, and that, I mean, Peter Dutton's original condition was we should just do constitutional recognition, which in which in itself is sort of a bit ironic, given for years the coalition under John Howard argued against symbol, symbolism, um, but. Putting that aside, yeah, the, the coalition's view is sim, you know, sorry, recognition in the constitution, but the voice should not be in the constitution, it should be legislated. Mm. But at the same time, you hear all these predictions of doom and gloom of what will happen you know, from the no camp and others if we do have a voice. Well, does it really matter if it's legislated or in the constitution? Now, you know, a voice is a voice. Now, the Libs have come back and said, oh, but we'd, we'd legislate a different voice and have a more regional focus. But that's that's really sophistry. I mean, you know. Well, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense either because if you no. have a regional and, and local voice. voices, yeah. how are those voices going to get up to the decision makers which hmm. who are in camp. Well, well that's I mean, right. And, and I mean, this thing will be designed by the parliament anyhow, Fran, right? If it, all that's going to happen on referendum day is, you know, we agree to form a committee. I mean, that's really it. That's you know, it. It's, not, it's yeah. no more complicated than that. And then, then the then, parliament then the, decides what that committee yeah, will look like and what it can do, yeah? That's right. And the opposition will have a significant input into that. So it really, it, they really are red herrings and, and there's a lot of, you know, inconsistency. And Look, hmm. there's another element here. The coalition has been... This line of questioning over treaty and truth, oh. Makarata, and now the length of the Uluru statement. Is it one page? Is it 26 pages? I could tell you. I sat there yesterday and thought, how... What are we, why am I even writing this? It was just, <laughs> good question. Yeah, it's, good question, it was so in, It was so inane, the whole thing. That, well, who's right? I mean, well, like, look, before, before I get to <laughs> well, maybe it does matter if it was, if it was it? true and there was a conspiracy. That's the question. But is there? Here's the Prime Minister hitting out. The referendum council six years ago took these background papers, published them in a report. Now, who was in government six years ago? Who was in government? Who set up their referendum council? So this is a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy. So that's the issue. Was it being hidden? No, it's just on the website, isn't it? It's been on the website since uh, 2017. Yeah, look, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is one page. I mean, it just, I've seen it. It's one page. It's you know 439 words long, and it makes the case for why we need um, the voice and then the, then the Truth and Treaty Commission, uh, uh, sorry, Truth Telling Commission culminating in a treaty. And, and the rest of it is just this supporting documentation and, and other arguments that were made and so forth, you know, the appendices and so forth. But the actual statement is one page. Yes, there's a, it's a 26-page thing if you download the whole thing. But but as it should it, be, it, they spoke to hundreds and hundreds of Indigenous Australians yeah. over no, the process. Yeah, it's, like, it's, 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 look, Fran, we, it's, just, it's just, again, it's about arguing about everything but actually what the vote's going to be about. But it's all about, you know, defeating this thing is all about stuff that we're not voting about. It's all about things that aren't going to happen. I mean, we saw in WA this week um, those laws. They had to repeal those laws, the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. Now, again, um, they were really clumsy laws that were poorly designed and had all these unintended consequences. And they, they were, you know, voice opponents just conflated the voice with that. The voice had nothing to do with that. The voice isn't going to do that sort of stuff. I mean, an Indigenous voice may be, able to, may be able to advise a government that we would like such laws, but it doesn't compel the government to adopt them. Nor, um, but, of course, you know, everything just gets conflated and into the scare mm. campaign. And, and that, I, I, reckon that's, I reckon the voice is dead in WA. I don't think it's got a chance there now. It didn't have much 
start with. It's now dead because of those laws. It's mm. d- definitely scared the bejesus mm. out of people. All right, I want to change topic quite sure. dramatically, but it's an important mm. topic. Let's start with the kind of consultancy fallout, mm. if you like. It started with the PWC scandal, but it seems like... Every day there are new revelations from consultancy firms engaged in government contracts. And this week, Four Corners alleged that KPMG had overcharged the Defence Department and billed for hours that they never worked in a strategy known as land and expand. Uh, In total, KPMG billed the Defence Department $1.8 billion over the past decade, an enormous amount of taxpayer money. And overall, the big four accounting firms have earned, what, $10 billion, I think, from Mm. taxpayers. So what do these new allegations and ongoing revelations say about the culture operating and whether there'll be any justice? Um, I mean, obviously there's a couple of inquiries that cops are yeah. looking at things, Phil, but where's this going? Look, I think I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as critical maybe, Patricia, as others on this, the culture of consultancy. Um, the PwC thing has been good because it's lifted the lid on the whole use of consultants and, and just how, how advanced it's become. Governments of both hues, you know, have been cutting the public service. Remember Kevin Rudd got into government? He said, I'm going to take a meat axe to the public oh, service. Oh, the meat axe, I remember. Remember the meat axe? He's yeah. here in the building today getting his portrait unveiled. <laughs> Maybe we could... Um, beard, no beard. Yeah, yeah, I think it's no beard, but I haven't seen it. No um, and then remember Penny Wong was finance minister and they started bringing in those efficiency dividends on the public service because they needed. They were trying to make a surplus and the coalition carried on with that. Um, and so we got to this point where... You know, the public service would have to shed people. There's a lot of time service in the public service. I don't want to be cruel, but there are. And they're still all there. And a lot of the good people went off to the consultancies because they could leave. They took packages and they and they were, they were immediately employable. And they took their skills to these consulting agencies and were paid very handsomely for doing it and, and basically kept doing their jobs for the, that they were doing in the public sector for the private sector. And this has just ballooned over the years. And look, by and large, you know, they, government, government departments, government offices use these consultants as they used to use the public service and it has been cheaper in some instances and in others it hasn't but I think it has got it's gone you know it's gone a bit nuts it's become a money-making exercise it's very lucrative business the figures are Uh, incredible I mean um, Four Corners said that KPMG billed the Defence Department 1.8 billion dollars over the past decade and overall the big four accounting firms have earned 10 billion dollars of mm. taxpayer dollars from the government in that time. I mean, that's well, huge. It is. Well, that Four Corners story, I mean, that's a perfect storm. You've got defence, which is the biggest waste of money on God's earth. Yeah. Uh, and always has been. And then, you know, teeing up with a consultants agency, consultancy agency, which has got its hooks into them. But you've got to remember, too, no one wastes money like the public service. You know, you, I mean, I live here in Canberra. I know a lot of them. I know a lot of people in departments. I know, I know people who deal with them. And it's just horrifying, some of the stories, um, you know, the, the amounts of waste. So... It's good we're looking at it. I think it's very healthy, but I'm not quite sure how easily or instantly fixable it will be. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, guys. Thanks, Phil. Fantastic to have you back. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Well, the bells are ringing, which means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Bridget, who writes to us from overseas, PK. Bridget says, loyal overseas listener, as a close observer of Ozpol from afar, it is sometimes hard to gauge how much of an impact discussions around The Voice are having on younger Australians. How are the campaigns on both sides using marketing tactics that will engage Gen Z and younger voters? Yeah, great question. Look, overwhelmingly, if you look at the demographic analysis of how people are going to vote, young people 
are overwhelmingly likely to vote yes. So targeting young people is something that the no campaign is not focusing on that group. You know, like any campaign, it's everyone they're trying to talk to, but it's not their focus. The Yes campaign knows that they need to mobilise those young people and, you know, you won't be surprised. They are doing it through the obvious channels, uh, social media being the most obvious one. There are restrictions, for instance, on TikTok about the way that you do that. Some, you know, creative ways of getting around some of that stuff. But, you know, there are some restrictions, but that's their target group. And then there's this. It's about the influences. And right now, I know, for instance, that the Yes campaign is trying to cultivate some of the, how can I call them? Those are cool kids, the young musicians, the people that play at, you know, cool festivals like Splendor in the Grass to try and be more active around saying yes, because they have an influence around these younger voters. And that's the way, rather than through kind of a pointy, you know, getting a leaflet to them. It's through that sort of influence. If you go to any of the Yes events, and I've seen pictures, it's still, interestingly, it's not overwhelmingly young people. Even though we know the older cohorts are more likely to vote no, there are a lot of progressive boomers, if I can use that term, and they're really active around the Yes campaign. Young people are probably a bit slower to it from my own observation, but there is a strategy around activating some of these cool, influential people to try and have more of an impact with that cohort. Yeah, though, I do think there's a bit of concern within the Yes camp that some of those cool influences, if you like, uh, the musos, the artists, that sort, of, those sort of people have sort of listen to the what you might call the progressive black argument too and a toying you know with the no argument on the grounds that it's not enough the voice is not enough and we should you know go harder go for treaty so there's a bit of concern too there i think that, that there is younger demographic the progressive demographic is not necessarily buying the idea of the voice yet mm. i do think that that progressive no It's kind of weakening as the date gets closer. We don't have the date, by the way, but it will get closer. We don't have the date, but it's coming. And PK, before we go, we should talk about the Matildas. They're driving us all wild right now. They're driving the PM wild too. He wants to elevate them to the agenda of National Cabinet. What? Yeah, because they deserve to be on the National uh, Cabinet agenda. Look, he wants to maybe, he's floated this idea of a public holiday if they win the whole uh, thing. If that happens and they win the whole World Cup on home soil, it'll be, oh, as as Warwick Hadfield would say on breakfast, unabashed pandemonium. I mean, can you imagine? We'll lose our minds. Uh, and he thinks it should be a public holiday. So that would have to be on the National Cabinet agenda. Makes sense, right? Uh, look, not everyone will agree with that. I think some business will say, no, obviously, you, you know, you lose money by having uh, public holidays. I know there's a big economic debate about them. But let's just do one thing before we end, Fran. Let's just think about the fact that a women's soccer game, right, called football, but we call it soccer here just to differentiate because we have the other codes, outstripped the men's grand finals for the AFL and the NRL in our country. Remember when they used to say no one wanted to watch women play sport? Apparently everyone wants to watch women play sport at the elite level. Everyone wants to watch the Matildas. Go Matildas, I say. See you, friend. See you, PK.